And welcome tonight. So glad you're here with us. Chosen to be back again tonight. So appreciative of that. As we begin our lesson tonight, I read a story about a little boy or a young man, actually, who wanted to play basketball really, really badly. And he did everything he could. He even talked to his daddy. He said, Daddy, he says, I want to play basketball. And not only do I want to play basketball, I want to play college basketball, and I want to play in the NBA. And there was only one problem with the, with the little guy is... The problem was he was a little guy. He, he, he was just too short. It was just obvious that he wasn't ever going to be a, a really good basketball player because of his height. And so his daddy took him very seriously. He even went down and he talked to the local coach. He said, Coach, says, is there anything I can do to help my boy out? He wants to play basketball so bad. Is there anything I can do? The coach said, well, said, the only thing I can think of is just take him down to the museum. They've got one of these racks in there that you, you know, used to be a torture rack. Just strap him on that and stretch him a little bit. That way it'll make him a little bit taller, you know. He was joking about it. Well, a few weeks later, the coach and the dad met up somewhere, and the coach had remembered it, and he said, uh, uh, said well, how did it work out? And, and the dad looked back at him and said, well, said, it didn't really make him any taller but he confessed to a lot of things that I never knew before. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes when we start thinking about confession, uh, sometimes they're coerced, sometimes they're not, but, but our topic tonight is re- uh, regarding confession. Now, let me take you through a couple of things as we set the scene for our study tonight. There was a survey that was done several years ago now, but in that survey... Uh, that came back and uh, was actually done by James Emery White or reported by him and uh, you can experience an authentic life. He said there were 91% of the Americans who were surveyed who confessed to lying at some point. 91%. And you know, that's been a few years back and it seems even now that lying has become even more acceptable and Not only is it something that people are willing to confess, uh, it's something that a lot of folks would even brag about, that they got away with lying, telling some untruth of some kind. And so if we were thinking about confession and thinking about the idea of, of somebody being willing to confess something, lying is probably one thing that that people would confess to, you know, we tell our children when they're young, don't lie to me, and and we come down sometimes pretty hard on them because they may tell us an untruth, but, but it seems in our society, in our nation, lying has become acceptable. But now having said that, let's go back and let's think about some things in the Word of God. Go back with me to the time when Joshua and the children of Israel crossed over into the promised land. And we know the events that took place as they crossed over the Jordan. And I want to ask you a question tonight. What is the first recorded sin that's mentioned in regard to the children of Israel after they cross into the promised land? Do you remember what the first, confe- the first reported sin or recorded sin is? Well, if you go to the book of Joshua chapter 7... That's where you'll read about the sin that has been committed. And especially in verses 20 and 21, uh, the Bible says there, uh, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from uh, from Shinar, 
and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them, and I took them, and see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Do you recall that Joshua, I mean, that uh, Achan said that my problem was I coveted. I coveted. You know, they'd been told back at the mount that one of the things that they were not to do, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. And so <clears throat> the very first thing that, that he confesses to is taking these things that had been dedicated to God, but he took them. The reason he took them is because he said, I coveted them. Now let's move forward in time and let's go to the beginning of the New Testament church. And I ask you the same question again tonight as I did just a moment ago. In the New Testament church, as it was established in Jerusalem, do you recall the first recorded sin that is mentioned in regard to the Christians in the New Testament church? In Acts chapter 5, we read the account of a man by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And verses 1 and 2 say... But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we know the discussion is going to be about lying in just a few minutes as they continue on their conversation. We know that, uh, that uh, Ananias and Sapphira are going to be told that that while the property, you know, it, it, it was theirs, they could have kept, you know, what they, whatever it was, they, they were not required to sell it. But I want you to key in on verse 2 and the, uh, the part that I have highlighted there. He kept back. Very interesting that if you trace that back, if you go back into the Septuagint, the Old Testament uh, translation into the Greek language, if you go back there, the same word that is translated kept back here in Acts chapter 5, verse number 2, is a word which is used in regard to Achan back in Joshua chapter 7. When he took the garments and he took the gold and he took the silver, it's actually translated take back there, but his taking was motivated by what? Remember we have the confession itself. The taking was motivated by covetousness. And so it's very well likely here that what motivated Ananias and Sapphira was their covetousness to have some of what they previously had and not give it all away. But, you know, sometimes covetousness <coughs> is not just money. Covetousness may be, you know, wanting what we, what we don't have, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute, but it may even be in regard to, uh, to prestige or someone giving us praise for what we have done. We covet those things. And so, both in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel entered into the Promised Land, and it seems that in the New Testament, when uh, we come uh, to that, that uh, the first two sins that are recorded in both are the idea, the, the sin of covetousness. Now... I got my slides out of order here, but let me back up just a little bit. If you could list all of the sins in the world, every kind of sin that could ever be committed, which one on the list would you imagine might be the one that's confessed 
the least. You see, our title tonight is, What is the Least Confessed Sin? Would you think that lying would be the top one? No. Would you think of uh, cheating on your spouse? Well, there are people who do that, and that's confessed quite a bit. May well be that what Achan did and what Ananias and Sapphira did would be at the top of the list. Now, I don't put too much stock in, well, I don't put any stock in their religious teaching. But in the Roman Catholic Church, there was a priest by the name of Francis de Sales. And he is reputed to be the the priest that has heard more confessions than any other Catholic priest. He's the one that that they looked up to. And you know what he said? He said that covetousness was one sin that he had never had confessed to him. Covetousness. You know, in the New Testament, we have warnings against covetousness. In Luke chapter 12, at verse 15, the Bible says, He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Jesus himself gives us a warning in regard to that. But I want you to look at what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 at verse number 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Now notice where Paul places the idea of covetousness. You know, we're aware of sexual sins. We, we talk about uh, homosexuality, and we talk about adultery and fornication and pornography and all of those kinds of things, and, and, and we deal with them quite a bit, but married with that, if you'll pardon the expression there, married with that, we have, or rather Paul, by inspiration, say, you don't do the sexual sins, oh, and by the way, tied, not, not of the same class, but of the same manner, you might say, same importance, and covetousness, those two things can't characterize a Christian. Not even to be named once among you as is proper for saints. You know, that seems to me that <laughs> that is a pretty dire warning. That, that it's something that we should be on lookout against. And yet, it may be that in our own nation we somewhat overlook the idea of covetousness. Now, tonight, what is covetousness? If we had to define it, we might simply say something like this. It's an inordinate desire to have more things than one already possesses. You know, <clears throat> we, we just have that desire that, that I, I, I see something that you got and I want that. And, 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 and I want something else and I want more and I want more and I want more. And that's the idea behind covetousness. We're not to be of that, uh, that way. You know, when we think about covetousness, it's the sin that man that, the, 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 that we read about in the book of Luke, chapters 12, verses 16 through 21. It's the idea of covetousness that motivated the rich fool, isn't it? The idea that's there. He, he, he planted his fields and they, they, they grew a lot of grain and everything. And, and, and he had so much that he had to build bigger barns. And he said, I'll sit back and I'll, I'll enjoy all of these things. And I'll eat and I'll drink and I'll be merry. Covetousness seems to be a motivating factor in him and his life. And, and <coughs> it, it's, 
it's somewhat like this. The idea of covetousness is the sin that, that a man has when his desire for to have things outruns his desire to be pleasing to God. Uh, what did that rich fool do? He said, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm going to enjoy myself and I'm not even worried about God. And so, as we look at it, that's, that's a part of the idea of covetousness. Now, I want you to think about something. Now, we haven't taken time tonight to read about the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. But you're probably familiar with it. If not, go home and read it tonight after you get home. But <coughs> is, there, is there one thing said, anything that's said, about this man getting his gain dishonestly? Is there any, any hint that this man may have gotten it illegitimately? Or, or does it seem that he got it through legitimate hard work? There are people who may have invested wisely, and yet they still crave more. Sometimes we classify that as greed, but the idea is rooted in covetousness itself. An inordinate desire to have more things than we already have. Now tonight in the remaining time that we have together, what are some of the consequences of covetousness? What are some of the consequences of covetousness? Let's look at four or five of them together. Number one tonight, covetousness makes me an idolater. Makes me an idolater. One preacher pronounced that an idolater, but an idolater, one who is an idol worshiper, okay? It makes me an idolater. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, as you see on the screen, the Bible says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. How could covetousness be idolatry? What is it about covetousness that makes it an idol for us? You know, we remember back in the book, book of Exodus chapter 20 at verse number 3 that among the Ten Commandments, the Bible says, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Th those people who followed Moses out of the Egyptian bondage and, and followed Joshua into the Promised Land, they were to not have any other God in front of him. He was to be their God. They got into uh, one occasion when Moses was receiving the law. They thought he wasn't coming back, and so they made up their own God. And uh, they uh, made the calf, you remember, and, and there was a commotion because of that. God threatened to destroy them. They, they, they were not to have any other God. If you trace them down through history, when they did get into the land, one of the things is that they were to, to not intermarry with other, uh, those uh, of the nations around them because they would turn their hearts away from God. And they did, and that's exactly what happened. They turned to other idols, began to worship them. But the point is, God says, you're not to have another God before me. Now, there's an equivalent to that to some degree in the New Testament. Look at Matthew chapter 6, at verse 24. In Matthew chapter 6 at verse 24, the Bible says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted 
to the one and despise the other. And the end of that verse is, you cannot serve God and mammon. The God of heaven. The heavenly Father. The one who sent the Son. You can't serve Him and mammon. Now, if you're reading from the English Standard, you can't serve God and money. But the word, the actual word is <coughs> the idea, the word mammon. But what is mammon? That's not a word that we generally use, is it? I mean, I, I, I don't go around talking about mammon all the time, and you probably don't either, but, but what is mammon? Holman's Bible Dictionary says, it's the Greek form of the Syriac or Aramaic word for money, riches, property, worldly goods, or profit. In general use, watch this, it is the personification of riches as an evil spirit or deity. Erdman's Dictionary says, a transliteration from Aramaic or Hebrew, absent from the Old Testament but common in rabbinic literature denoting money or goods, contrary to popular, popular belief, no evidence has been found for the cult of a pagan god called Mammon. Here, Mammon is personified as the object of false devotion. Easton's Bible Dictionary says, a Chaldee or Syriac word meaning wealth or riches, also by personification, the God of riches. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. The God of riches is competing with the God of heaven. And a lot of times we try to, we try to hold on to one or the other. Uh, well, sometimes we try to hold on to both, but Jesus makes the point that we've got to either choose one or the other. But you've got the God of heaven who is the one true God, and then you've got that false God, that false deity, that personification of a deity called mammon. You know, in essence, what Jesus is saying, you can't have another God above the God of heaven. You can't have another God above my Father. You can't have another God above me. And so as we look at it, and we think about what covetousness does, it, it takes us away from God. You know, there are many modern idolaters who call themselves Christians, who if you brought a golden calf or some kind of pagan god into their home, they would be pitching a fit. They just would not have it. But at the same time, they invite freely the God of money into their home. And they worship and they serve that God. You see, covetousness is a really big deal. It's not something that we just pass over. It competes for our love for God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Covetousness makes me an idolater. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14 at verse number 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. 
When we've replaced God with another God, a false God, it's time for us to repent. Just like the Old Testament, uh, the children of Israel were to do that, then so it is for us as well. Number two, one of the other consequences of covetousness is that it results in bitter domestic problems. Domestic meaning home problems, home life. Have you ever noticed what is said in the book of Proverbs chapter 15 at verse 27? Whoever is greedy is the way that it's translated in the English standard. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Troubles his own household. Now, please nobody raise your hand. But how many of the husbands and wives here have ever had a fight over money? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. Yep. <clears throat> I can see it on your faces. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to raise your hand. We won't call it a fight. We just talk, talk about it being a discussion. A deep discussion. Sometimes the idea of money makes a marriage almost unbearable. Matter of fact, many surveys say that money is the top thing that people argue about in their marriage. And so we understand that there's the possibility of having domestic problems based on money itself. But let me take that to a different level. Let me take it to in another direction. How many of you have ever seen a case where a mother and a father die and the estate is left to be divided among the heirs, the sons and the daughters? How many of you have ever seen brothers and sisters torn apart over an inheritance. I've seen them just almost go to war over an inheritance. It is fighting and backbiting and doing everything they can because I want my part of what mom and daddy left me. It's mine. Not yours. I'm the favorite son. I'm the favorite daughter. They wanted me to have this. And you would probably be surprised at the number of court cases that are heard before our courts over families who are torn apart because children, heirs, wanted what was quote-unquote theirs. Rightfully mine. We talk about sometimes young folks today wanting to start out their, their marriage and have everything that mama and daddy had in their own home, you know, as they were growing up, that mama and daddy worked a lifetime to have, and, and young people just haven't uh, uh, had the time to work for all of those things yet. And, and we know that when they try to have everything that mama and daddy already has, they put themselves under a strain, and that's what leads to, the, to the, sometimes the fights That's a form of covetousness, just like the brothers and the sisters who battle one another over what mama and daddy had. You see, the consequences of covetousness is not only that it makes me an idolater and tears me apart from the God of heaven, but it also tears me apart sometimes from those who are or should be closest to me, those who are down here on earth. 
those who are brothers and sisters and mothers and daddies and those who are our family members. That's another consequence of covetous, number three. Another consequence of covetousness is that it causes men to depart from the faith. Now, how do you know that? Well, let's take a, take a gander into the Bible. Before we do that, <clears throat> let, let's think about, again, what is said in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, or 6, verses 19 through 21. Now, we read verse 24 just a minute ago, but leading up to that about making the decision between God and mammon, Jesus had something to say. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust doth, uh, destroy, but, and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus lays down a principle of, of here's your treasure and here's your heart. If your treasure's here, your heart's not over here. Your heart is right here. Okay? Now, let's go back and let's talk about that example that I mentioned. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 at verse number 10. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 10. Here's the passage that says, For Demas, English Standard Translation, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, having loved this present world, having being in love with this present world, he, he left Paul behind. Where's Paul at? Paul's in prison. But, but what is the reason that Paul gives here? Paul says that Demas is in love with this present world. What part of the world did Demas love? John wrote about the love of the world. He said, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What part of the world did Demas love? Jameson Fawcett and Brown in their commentary say it this way, his motive for forsaking Paul seems to have been the love of worldly ease, safety, the comforts of home, and a disinclination to brave danger with Paul. Whatever part it was, I think it would be safer to say that is what Demas coveted. He made his choice. He left Paul... Evidently, he's, the, Paul says he has forsaken me. Having, ha, he, he left me here and he's forsaken me. And implication is very well that he had forsaken God. Consequences of covetousness, is in, it, it includes us departing from the faith. Have you ever known anyone who, who because they just had to work so much to pay their bills, they made the decision it was more important to do that than it was to be a part of the Lord's family. I have. That is so sad. They departed from the faith. 
because of their covetousness. Not that they were starving to death. Not that they, not that they, you know, were in such dire need. They just needed more of this world's goods. And so they left the Lord. So easy to do that. And then seek to justify it. Covetousness, one of the consequences, is it causes men to depart from the faith. Not only that, but it leads men to many foolish and hurtful acts. Look at Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And while you're turning there, let me give you a quote from Benjamin Franklin. Franklin said, Money has never made man happy, nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. Pretty true statement. Now, look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I want you to think as we go through this. There the Bible says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is far is from long ago, is, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In their greed, they will exploit you with many false words. Barnes, in his commentary, says this phrase that in some translation is, is translated, make merchandise of you. But the idea is to make merchandise of you. To treat you, not as a rational being, but as a bale of goods. Or, or any other article or traffic. That is, they would endeavor to make money out of them and regard them only as fitted to promote that object, the object of making money. Our point is that covetousness leads men to do many foolish and hurtful things. Now having read what is found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, think about the modern day TV evangelist. And think about the mega mansions that some of them live in. And the private jets and the fancy cars. And compare that with the message that they preach. It doesn't take long to follow along with most of them until you find that they have veered completely away from anything called in the Bible. But they make it sound so good to people. And they entice people and they draw them in. And because they've drawn them in, they give more and more and more. And who are they giving to? They make merchandise. Covetousness will cause you to do a lot of bad things. What could be worse than teaching someone how to go to hell rather than how to go to heaven. That's pretty strong, isn't it? 
pretty, pretty strong. Now, we could turn that around and say it leads us to many foolish and hurtful acts. It causes us to do a lot of things, doesn't it? It, it would cause us to lie and, and, and to cheat and to do all of those things. But look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Focus on the words, pierced themselves. The idea is that this is something that these people have done to themselves. The meaning of the word that's translated pierce themselves means, according to Strong's, to penetrate entirely. According to Newman, to pierce through or impale, according to Loanida, to experience something which is adverse and severe. Thayer, in his Greek-English commentary, says metaphorically, to torture one's soul with sorrow. Covetousness leads men to many foolish and hurtful acts. Some it would lead to teach others in such a way that they can't go to heaven based on the teaching. Some leads even a person to do that to himself or herself. To pierce himself or pierce herself through with many sorrows, many pangs. It's something that's done by themselves to themselves. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read about Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tried it all. You know he tried it all. You know he had everything at his disposal to try it with because he had asked God for wisdom. And God says, because you didn't ask me for riches, I'll give you wisdom, but I'll give you the riches too. And when the queen of Sheba came to uh, see Solomon, she was amazed because she had never seen so much wealth in one place. Solomon had it all. And Solomon wasn't happy. The wealth couldn't buy the happiness. It couldn't do it in Solomon's day, and it can't do it today. And no matter how much you have, you'll never have the happiness that only Christ can give you. So covetousness destroys a not only other people, but it leads men to do foolish and hurtful things to themselves as well. Not only to lie and steal and cheat and gamble and embezzle and murder, but to destroy one's own life and soul. There's much hurt, much heartache, much regret that comes from the acts of a covetous person. A man by the name of Joshua Becker, Larry, I quit clicking here for some reason. A man by the name of Joshua Becker wrote this. He says, when the love of money is present, freedom is not. And he's so right. And he lists several things in the article that I read. He said, the love of money consumes our time. The love of money wastes our energy, devours our values, fuels competition, limits our potential, attracts the love of money, and destroys other loves. And we don't have time tonight to deal with each one of those individually, but focus on the next to the last one for just a moment. It attracts the love of money. If, 
If the person who, is, who has that covetousness in his or her heart is attracting other people with covetousness in his or her heart, doesn't misery love company? Don't you have two miserable people trying to comfort one another without anything with which to comfort? You know, I haven't watched a soap opera in a hundred years. I, I don't know, Luke and Laura, are they still around? <laughs> Used to see them sometimes when I was at home sick because my grandmother, she wanted to watch her stories, you know. Back in those days, Luke and Laura, I don't know if they're still alive or not. But you know what they portray? A bunch of rich folks who are miserable. With a bunch of other rich folks who are miserable. And they've been miserable for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. They haven't changed one thing. The same is true in real life. There's still other soap operas today that are to be found on TV in regard to those who are rich and wealthy, the real housewives and all of those kinds of things. I've never watched it. I just read some things about it. We need to be very careful because the love of money, covetousness, covetousness, it'll destroy you. It'll cause you to do many hurtful things. Now, as we close, or actually begin to close down tonight, how is covetousness manifested? I just want to mention these very quickly, and then, then the lesson will be yours. Covetousness is manifested with the me-first attitude. What do you mean by that? It's that attitude that per- puts yourself, your interest, ahead of everything, including God's interest, the me-first And when God has to take a lower seat in our throne room or the throne room of our mind or our heart, then something's wrong. When we allow something other than God to to occupy that throne, then we have a problem. Uh, It can be another person, it can be self, it can be material things that occupies that throne, but it's all motivated by me first. Number two. Covetousness is manifested in greed or giving grudgingly to the Lord's work or even sometimes to others and not, not counting the Lord. You know, sometimes rich and wealthy folks, some of them can be quite generous. And you read about that and we're thankful for that. But sometimes you read about these folks who have a lot, who give a little, who... who who, who may not have any affinity for God whatsoever, but they don't have any affinity for their fellow man either. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't help you very, very much at all if, if you were in need. And so we, we need to be careful with that. We penny pinch to the point that we don't want to do anything that is good. And, and of course, the Bible does teach us, and there's no scripture that's written down up there, but Second Corinthians chapter 9, God loves... Cheerful givers. Number three, how is covetousness manifested? Sometimes it's manifested simply by gambling. That's a, it's a symptom. Gambling is a symptom of covetousness because it's, you have that desire to get money 
By wagering on chance, that's what gambling is. And you know what you really have when you have a bunch of gamblers together? You have a pool of covetous people who are hoping to come out, one of them being the winner. That's what you have. That's the drive. And somebody has to lose, but all hope to gain at the other's loss. I want mine. Number four. Covetousness is manifested when our hunger for money or things takes us away from our responsibilities at home. You know, sometimes people pay the price of covetousness with neglected children. Neglected children have neglected guidance. They have neglected discipline. They have neglected love. How many times does that end up in tragedy? The tragedy of a home that is destroyed when a son or a daughter turns themselves into one who has no regard for others or anything. How many times? The world wins, churches lose, and families lose. When we allow covetousness to take us away, to consume our mind and consume our time in all of these endeavors. Then not only that, next on our list is covetousness is manifested when you tell yourself lies to justify your actions. Many tell themselves, I have to. I have to. I have to have a nice vehicle. I have to have a nice home. I have to have the, the best of everything. I have to have a lot of good entertainment. I have to have a vacation. A big, long vacation on which we spend hundreds or thousands of dollars. I have to have it. Well, folks... I don't know if you noticed it or not, but I kept emphasizing one word. Have to. I have to have it. Most of these things are not necessities. They're just desires. And we lie to ourselves and say that I have to have these things when in reality you don't. Some of the happiest people I know live in huts. They've never driven a car or even ridden in one. They don't have a TV, never been on a vacation. But we lie to ourselves, I have to have it. Oh, no, we don't. Covetousness will cause us to do that. I really like this, again, as we actually get to our close now. Someone has said this, Beware of having such a tight hold on your gold that you don't have a hand free to grasp the handle of the pearly gate. There's no pearly gate up there. But one thing you can say about this fellow that you see on the screen, he ain't got no empty hand. And unfortunately, that's the way so many are. They are so caught up 
and covetousness that they don't even recognize it, much less confess it. They're so caught up in it that they endanger their soul. And they don't have time for nor hand for God or anything in regard to Him. And I pray to my God that I never become that way. And if we do, if any of us do, then then this little confessed sin, I don't know that I could say tonight with 100% certainty that, that covetousness is the least confessed sin. That's not the point. But it's very little confessed in a lot of areas. And when we allow that to happen in our lives, even when we won't admit it to ourselves, we're in danger. We need to be careful. And sometimes in our own nation, which is thought of as being the richest nation on earth, and that we're blessed to live in it, and we are. We are blessed. We allow covetousness to be the standard rather than the exception. And we shouldn't do that. It may be tonight that there's something amiss in your life that you need to correct. It may be that you need to come to the Lord to have your sins washed away in His blood. Whatever the case may be, if we can assist you, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing.